finishing up a three-part series about who do you think you are, talking about how we think about ourselves as Christians. And uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 3 now. I've been sort of preaching through these first few chapters of Ephesians. And uh, today, we're going to eventually really talk about farming. Probably figured that out already. Um, But it's going to take a little bit of a leap to get there, because this is actually one of the biblical texts that doesn't have that much farming in it. But I still think there's some things to be learned from thinking about farming. So let me read for you Ephesians 3, and we'll jump in. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles... Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promises the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power to me though I am the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages In God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you, you to be strengthened with the power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul is writing this text to the Ephesians to encourage them. Why do they need encouraged? Well, as Gentile believers, they're under some attack from the Jewish believers. The Jewish believers are trying to say, no, you can't just believe in Jesus. You also have to become Jewish. That's a problem for these Gentiles because they're not Jewish. They don't think like Jews. And, And it's a further problem because as the apostles wrestle this through they start to understand that this gospel of Jesus has nothing to do with being Jewish. Being Jewish just laid a lot of the, 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 the groundwork. It sort of looked forward to this gospel of Jesus, but they're not the same thing. So they're suffering. And not only are they suffering, but we can see from this text that Paul is suffering. Paul is a prisoner. He doesn't mean that metaphorically. At this point, he's in prison. 
He's under house arrest for the things that he said and the things that he's doing. And it seems from this text, the way he says to them to not be discouraged by his own imprisonment, that they're discouraged. That they look at Paul, their leader, and say, well, if you're suffering so much and you're doing God's will, what hope do we have? And Paul writes and reminds them, listen, you've got to understand why I do this. And he lays out this whole thing, that he was the least of the saints. What he means by that, he spells that out even more clearly in 1 Corinthians. That he persecuted the, the Christians. That he wasn't one of the main disciples. He was, not a, he was anti-disciples. Okay? He was standing there encouraging the crowd when they first stoned Stephen, the first deacon. Paul says, I should not be counted among the apostles, but somehow God granted to me, called me to be a minister. He called me to proclaim this mystery. He uses this term mystery several times. Mystery doesn't mean unknown thing. When we hear mystery, we think like Sherlock Holmes or, or like something you've got to kind of discover. And it, mystery means something so amazing that you can't totally wrap your arms around it. You can't totally comprehend it. And what is this mystery that Paul is talking about? It's grace. It's that Christ came, sacrificed himself for us, so that you don't have to be Jewish, and you don't have to follow a bunch of rules, but this grace becomes a gift that you could never earn that's given to you. And and amazingly, the, the real mystery, the thing that shook the Jewish community, shook the early Christians, was that it wasn't just about being Jewish. It was for everybody. Paul thinks Christians, therefore, should have boldness. Why? Because Christ starts this church. And Paul's understanding is that the church should be this impact in the world around them. He says it in the text. You know, the church ought to be out there speaking to authorities and powers. That it ought to be making testimony. It ought to be pointing to Jesus. Therefore, Christians should have boldness in their faith because God has called the church to be something amazing. And that... As Christians, we will suffer. We will go through pain. We will be afflicted. People will resist us, but that we should have boldness. I mean, imagine Paul's assumptions here. He's assuming, number one, the power of the gospel is so big, it should transform our lives. Not only that, he's assuming that the power of the church is so strong, it should transform the world. And he's also assuming... That because of that call to transform the world, that Christians will suffer, they will be afflicted, they will have hard work to do ahead of them. And so he prays for this people in Ephesus that this church would continue to be bold and strong and continue in the work. But I pause here. Because I think Paul's view of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a church seems so different than our own. American Christianity doesn't look like this. I mean, do we think about the gospel of Jesus as being so big that we need strength to comprehend it? That's what Paul prays for them. He wants them to have the strength to understand the the depth and the width and the height of this gospel. Do we see the gospel as that big or have we boiled it down to some simple formula? Do we really think the church can change the world? Do we really have a part of this Christian thing where we expect to suffer for our faith? American Christianity has moved to a point where it looks less and less like Paul's vision. And so, in order to help us try to make this bridge from Paul's vision to our own vision, 
I want us to think about farming. Farming is a major metaphor in the Bible. In fact, it's, it's, it's probably most of the dominant metaphors in the Bible are farming. Why? Because society at that time was so based in farming. In the Old Testament, you have many kings and prophets that were trained up as shepherds and farmers. Saul and Elisha were both called. That's a king and a prophet. They're both called while they're working their fields. We, look earlier, we looked earlier this year at the book of Ruth, a story totally set on a farm. Jewish festivals were based around the harvest year. Many Old Testament metaphors of God as shepherd or us being planted beside streams. Human beings are created right in the beginning and put in a garden and asked to tend it. Even in the New Testament, where farming is not, most of the characters in the New Testament are not farmers. Okay, Jesus is a carpenter, probably worked more with stone. Uh, Paul is a uh, uh, tent maker. The disciples are fishermen and tax collectors. But if you notice, Jesus still uses, and Paul primarily uses, these agricultural metaphors. Why? Because society was still based in farming. Think about Jesus' parables. Planting seeds, mustard seeds, hiring workers for the field, buying a field. Jesus said he is the vine and we are the branches. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Paul, and even our passage, says that we are to be rooted and grounded in love. Another farming metaphor. See, we, we've, how many of you know farmers? I know of people who own farms, but I know very few people who actually farm their farms anymore. Most farmers rent out most of their fields to other people. And so there's really a relatively few number of people actually farming anymore. And farming has a certain ethos. It has a certain way of thinking about the world and approaching the world. And I think we in our country today, as we've gotten away from farming, for a lot of different reasons, have lost sight of some of these things. And I think if we reflect on them, it's going to help us really get into this vision that Paul has. A couple comparisons then. Our society wants things to be easy. Our society tends to not like work. The idea is you want to be innovative. You want to figure something out quickly, something new that saves everyone from work. So you go to any store, you're going to find all kinds of mechanisms that make it easier for you to do stuff that really wasn't a problem in the first place. Like automatic hand towel dispensers, paper towel dispensers. A solution to a problem that was never a problem. We have all kinds of reasons why we want things to be easy, why we don't want to work. Farmers know that there is work, right? That work has to be done. And the value of work in our society, I think, is going to have to go back up. Because stuff has to get done. The Bible is really clear that we will be afflicted. That we will go through hard times. That there will be work. The farmer knows that sometimes it's nothing you can control. Sometimes the wind comes. Sometimes an animal gets into your, into your crop. Sometimes the sun beats down and kills a number of your seeds. But you also understand if you're a farmer that sometimes it's your own fault. You plant the wrong seeds. You get the wrong crop. I don't know what to tell you. And I know many Christians... They get frustrated by things in their lives that they caused. If you plant potatoes and expect corn, you're not a smart farmer. Okay? We are going to be afflicted, and sometimes it's because we make foolish decisions, but there are other times, and I think 
I think as Americans, we shun this idea. And in the church, we've made the church so easy and so low expectation that we've missed out on this. Jesus said to take up your cross. He said to count the costs before you build a building. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, you will face trials of many kinds. That's Paul's understanding. Paul's understanding is you've got to do the work. You've got to dig deeper in your own life. You've got to reach out to other people. And it's not easy. And it's going to be hard. And you're going to be afflicted. And sometimes, I mean, Paul was very personally attacked. Paul was stoned. He was beaten. He had all kinds of things done by very evil people. In fact, he used to be one of those evil people going after Christians. We should expect that. Sometimes God does that because he wants us to have a testimony. Other times God puts us through those things or lets us go through those things because we need to grow. Right? Doesn't Jesus talk when when he says, uh, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Jesus also talks about pruning. That there's stuff that needs to be cut away from our lives. And sometimes that's a hurtful process. The farmer understands that there are works. There's work to be done, that there are challenges. And and also, our society wants everything to be instant and right now, but the farmer understands patience. The farmer understands that there are seasons, that there's a time to plant, that there's also winter. There's a time that's harvest, and everybody likes harvest, but there's a time where you just got to tend the crops and you got to wait. Look at Paul's ministry. He expects that it's going to take time. I mean, he, he, he's got to understand when he gets the call to go out and preach to all the Gentiles that there's a lot of Gentiles. And so what does he do? One step at a time, one city at a time, one, one of Paul's missionary journeys at a time. He goes and has the impact and he understands that it's going to take time. We want everything instant. Okay, first there were fast food and you could, then you could drive through. So that was even faster food. Now, if you go to a restaurant that's really slow, you get really upset, right? We want everything now. There's a huge amount of money spent every day on things bought online to pay for faster shipping. Do you know that? I mean, the the faster shipping market is huge. Why? Why wait five days when I can only wait two days for my object? I mean, it's crazy how instant we think we are. Farmers have a long-term perspective. Just like Ecclesiastes talk about, they understand that there are seasons. That sometimes we go through dry spells, and maybe those are just winter. Maybe that's the death that needs to take place for new life to be born. It takes patience. It takes perspective. And as we wait, our society wants us to do one of two things. Either wants us to charge in and do it all ourselves, or, or there's sometimes this tendency for us to totally wait on God. Have you sensed those two sort of conflicting ideas? Like, I don't, I don't wait on God, I'm just going to do it. Or I'm going to do nothing and just wait till God lays it out or does it for me. But the farmer knows, the farmer knows that both are important. That I've got a part to do and that God has a part to do. There's a story of a pastor who went to see a farmer. And this farmer had this beautiful field sort of up on a hill. And there was a wall around the field from all the rocks that had been removed over time. And this wall had sort of built up. And the pastor said to the farmer, Oh, aren't you so thankful that God has blessed you with this farm and and just all this beautiful land and all this harvest? And the farmer said, Yeah, yeah, I really am thankful. But you should have seen the place when God had it on on his own. 
there were rocks everywhere. There were no, nothing was in line. And I had to come in and really clean this place up. See, we don't just wait on God. And we don't just do it ourselves. If we think like a farmer, we understand that both are important. That we have our part to do and that we expect God to do His part. For some reason, God has chosen to partner with us for His purpose in this world. Paul is really clear in this text about that, right? That God is raising up the church to have an impact on the world. That's Paul's vision. He's having you all grow and he's having us grow together, and he's having us impact the world. That's the partnership that God has for us. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians, that I planted, Apollos watered, but God brought the growth. We're not totally responsible for the growth. The farmer can't take control of everything. There's rain, there's sun, there's seasons. God's got to do his part. But as the farmer, you've also got to do the plowing. You've also got to do the harvesting. The corn is not going to cut itself down. As Christians, we have to have both. Jesus said in Luke 10 and Matthew 9 that the harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. He's talking about people that are ready to be harvested, that are ready to come to know Christ, that are ready to come into the gospel, but there's no one to go tell them. There's no one ready to go harvest. This is a challenge for us today. Because the church in America has become either one of two kind of extremes for church. It's either become very easy to be church. You can come to church and do nothing and just show up and that's fine. That's what church means. Church is here to make you primarily feel happy. Or we get very legalistic churches, very rule-oriented churches, which is all about you've got to follow these rules, you've got to be really strict about all this stuff. And, and the gospel comes somewhere in the middle and says both of those are wrong. And there's a challenge for us, isn't there? I mean, don't we all sort of have these two voices in our head? One that says we want to grow spiritually. Yeah, I, I would really like to grow, grow spiritually. But there are certain things I don't really want to change either. Certain things in my life I really don't want to deal with. Certain people I would like to not forgive. Who has the time to read their Bible? It's such an old book. How do you get into it? We want to grow, but we're not sure we want to make the, the work do the work or make the sacrifices necessary. Don't we have those same two voices in our heads with church too? Uh, we'd love to see the church grow, but we'd also like to stay, stay basically the same. We'd like people to come to church, but we're not always sure that we want to invite, or we'd like to make sure that they sort of look like us, and they sort of think like us, and they'll sort of vote like us, so we can kind of carry on the way they, we are. We like our finances in the church to be better, but we're not sure that we want to give to that. We want our church to kind of stay the same. Most of our friends go to church, but we don't want to make new friends. Find new people that might need harvested. I have these same voices too. But the Christian has to ignore those voices. Has to be willing to say, there's work to be done. And the work is going to be hard, and I may be afflicted, and there may be problems, but, but i got to do it anyway. i got to get outside my comfort zone and do it anyway. And I'm laying down a challenge here because I think Paul's writing is so different than ours. But, but remember that Paul is writing not to say to the Ephesians, you know, you need to do this. He's writing to encourage them in the middle of it. And how does he encourage them? 
One is, he reminds them that their faith is really rooted in Christ. It's rooted in love. It's rooted in this mystery, in this grace. That we don't go out and do work so that we can earn or even keep God's favor. But that we go out because we are already in Christ and we are just living up to what we already are. That is so important. Otherwise, you're going to just turn into one of those legalistic kind of churches and legalistic kind of people. But the second aspect, I think, to this hope is that we can call out to God. That He is willing to hear us. He is more able to answer, as Paul says, than we could ever dream of asking. God is more capable of covering you, of being there for you, walking there with you. I want to thank so many people here who do sacrifice so much for this church. And I also want to challenge everybody to think about where God might be calling them. Maybe to start with an invitation. I've been trying to say this for a few weeks. Who do you know that you might invite to church? Doesn't have to be that hard. Doesn't have to be that complicated. Who would come here, John Cole? Who would come to our fall festival? There's some stuff you can invite people to. You know, if, if everybody in this church invited two or three people... That could have a very big impact on our church. In fact, if everybody in here could find, I don't know, five, eight people to invite, that could have a huge impact on this church. I mean, not all those people would come. Not all those people would stay, but some really might. What about some harvesting? What about some inviting? I think if we all found five or eight people that maybe we could invite, that could have a huge impact. Wouldn't it be neat to double the church this year? That'd be huge. Why does Paul do it? It's because of the love he's experienced. That's got to be our motivation. It can't be a should. It's got to be a get to. Let me, let me conclude with Paul's words of encouragement to them. And hear these. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your love for us and for Your grace. Lord, we get nervous when we think about reaching out. We get, we get a little nervous, but... Also, Lord, I think it's just contrary to the way we've understood church and the way we've approached spirituality in our lives. And so help us. Lord, help us to realize that we can call out to you. Give us the courage, the strength, the words, the leading. Lord, by your grace, sustain us in all that you ask us to do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.